Thank you so much, brother. Greetings from Farmington, New Mexico and Grace Hill Church, your sister church, and it is such a pleasure to be here with you this morning. And I, I want to preach out of 1 Peter 4, 7 through 11, and I know that we have read the scriptures already, but I want to go back to it and just read it and set the context for us and, and, and get rolling into this text. And I think it's, it's actually relevant because it speaks of the things that are capable of healing us as churches. And it's set in the end times. We're going to be talking about the end times, but it's, it's, it's relevant because even now, churches are hurting, churches are divided more than ever before. Denominations are divided. And so there, there needs to be this sense of like, how do we react to it? How do we work through this and maintain sound doctrine, love for God, love for one another? Uh, how is it that we live up to these things? And so let's begin. Let's read these verses and then get into it. First Peter 4, verse 7. The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. Let, let's stop right there, because that, that's really the lion's share of what I'm going to preach. And we're going to be talking again about the end times. And so let me begin with this question. What is your initial gut reaction when you hear the phrase, the end times? Here's mine, and it's goofy. I know, but this is it. Grab a Bible, a uh, bunch of bullets, I don't know, seven to 20 years worth of beans, you know, and, uh, and then move to Blanco, New Mexico. I, do you guys know where Blanco is? Yeah, it's itty-bitty. It makes uh, Bayfield look like a huge metropolis. It's just, but it's where my in-laws live, and uh, my father-in-law has a lot of guns, and that's where we store all our beans, and so that's our plan, the end times. Now, and if I was to talk to you, I'm sure uh, you all have similar plans, right? And it's like Bible, bullets, beans, Bayfield, you know, so it's, it's fairly close. And so that's the plan, other than moving to Blanco. Now, uh, I'm not going to say that any of those things are necessarily wrong, but I've often wondered, especially as of late, given our current worldwide cycle of doom and gloom, I wonder, what does the Bible actually tell us to do? How does our Father want us to live in the end times? And again, I know what I want, Bible, bullets, beans, but what does God expect out of all of us, not just myself, but we as the church believers? Let me put it to you like this. What would you do if you knew beyond a shadow of a doubt that the world would end tomorrow? Now think about your answer for just a moment. Would you hide away in fear? Would you indulge every sinful inclination? Would you gather with friends and family, people that you love? Perhaps you would go and beg those you know and perfect strangers alike to repent and trust in Jesus Christ. Here's what the German reformer Martin Luther said when he was asked a very similar question. He said, even if I knew that tomorrow the world would go to pieces, I would still plant my apple tree. In other words, he was so assured of God's love for him personally and confident of the promises of God's word about the future, he was able to live his life in the present moment with all of its challenges, all of its chaos. He was able to live with faith in God, hope 
for the future and love in his heart, even though he knew tomorrow the world ends. Now then, right here, near the end of the book of 1 Peter, the apostle finally turns his attention to the end times. And so this morning, we're going to look at these two ways we must, as a church, as individuals, but as a church in particular, that we must live in the end times. What we are about to look at, I hope, is going to assure you that despite living in a hostile world, God has a plan for you and for his people, and not only that, that he loves you and will not abandon you. Now, let's not just personalize that. I want you to think about that as a church. As Colby just said, um, he, he made note of the fact that we've spoken about uh, you know, brokenness, if you will, that myself, my family, my wife, my wife Stephanie's here with me now, uh, my four sons, you know, that, that we've experienced out of 17 years of ministering there at Grace Hill in Farmington. It wasn't, it wasn't always called Grace Hill. At one time it was called Crestview. Uh, the honeymoon lasted, what did you say, three months? It was like three months, yeah. It wasn't long, you know, and... Um, and so some of the same things occurred to me. And now, look, by the way, real quickly, there, there's no enemies here. None. There are only sinners saved by grace. Right? That's it. We're all still brothers and sisters in Christ. You know, I was raised with two little brothers, and I fought with those guys all the time, and I love them with all my heart. My four sons, they fought like animals. I, you would think that they weren't brothers, but they love each other. And even then, they loved each other. We, we do these things. We are sinners saved by grace. And so what I'm getting at is that we experience division. We experience heartache. We sin against one another in the church. And I want you to know that God wins in the end for all of us. Even those now that have wounded us and that we might even hold some resentment to. There's going to be reconciliation. There's going to be healing and love is going to endure. It's going to win the day because Christ died for us. He loves us. He loves you. He loves your church and he's going to heal you just like he did us and he brought us through that as well. So my purpose this morning is to enable you to glorify God and what I mean by that is to be a reflection Despite end-time events, despite hardship, despite, despite brokenness in marriages, in families, and in churches, despite all of that, to be able to glorify him, to reflect his character, his love, his wisdom, his forgiveness, regardless of what's going on in your life. And so that's our purpose this morning. So let's get to it as we look at these two ways you must live during the end times, or you could change that to say, uh, you know, just hard times, difficult times, what have you. So here's the first thing we must do. Be calm and think clearly. Look at verse 7. The end of all things is at hand, and therefore be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Now, why would the apostle tell the churches of the diaspora, which mentioned all the way back, chapter 1, verse 1, why would he declare that the end of all things is at hand? Did he personally see signs or have some kind of personal revelation? Actually, it's not that mysterious at all. 
We can read the apostles' very first sermon, the Apostle Peter's. And we see it right there. He says explicitly that we are currently living in the last days, the end times. And you can turn with me, if you will, and hopefully I won't go through these too quick, but we have some, you know, some cross-references to look at. Here's the first one, Acts chapter 2, verses 15 through 18. I'm going to bend this down just a little bit, if you all don't mind. I'm short, and that is like way over my head. And so, in any case, Acts chapter 2, verse 15. And he's explaining right here, by the way. He's explaining that, hey, look, here's the Holy Spirit has come down. They've been filled with the Spirit. They've been empowered by him. Now they burst out into the streets of Jerusalem, the same streets which prior to this, their Lord and Savior had been marched through outside of the city gates where he was crucified. And now there was all this fear prior to this. Now they are fearless for Christ. And they are uttering the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ in different languages. And so he's telling them, these men are not drunk, as you suppose, since it is only the third hour of the day. But this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. And in the last days. So he says it right there, meaning right now. Over 2,000 years ago. In the last days it shall be, God declares, I will pour out my spirit on all flesh, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. Now, this should may come as a surprise for some of you, but it really shouldn't. If we are earnest students of the word, we'll see that the warning just throughout the scriptures that we are living in these end times, and that they are perilous, and that they are just filled with trouble for us. Here's just an initial sample of that, of what Jesus had to say about these end times. It's found in Matthew 24, verses 3 through 13. It's a long read, yeah, but it's worth it. And it creates in us some sense of tension. Often we'll read these texts and we'll think, well, that's for the church of tomorrow to have to figure out the next generation, but this is something that was going on even then, and it's only growing. So look at what he says, verse 3. As he sent, sat on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately, saying, Tell us, when will these things be, and what will be the sign of your coming and at the close of the age? And Jesus answered them, See that no one leads you astray. For many will come in my name, saying, I am the Christ. And they will lead many astray. And you will hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you are not alarmed. For this must take place, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be famines and earthquakes in various places. All these are but the beginning of birth pains. Then they will deliver you up to tribulation and put you to death. And you will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. And then many will fall away and betray one another and hate one another. And many false prophets will arise and lead many astray. And because lawlessness will be increased, the love of many will grow cold. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. Now let's be honest. That's scary stuff. And this isn't even the half of it. No one in their right mind wants to endure what is found here. False Christ's. War, famine, natural disasters, severe persecution, and on and on. But here's the thing. 
The church has already been enduring these things, these birth pains, as our Lord put it, since his life, his crucifixion and resurrection. It's slowly but surely getting worse. And as bad as you think it is now, and, and it is bad, right? I mean, there are times that I have to just simply turn off my phone. You know, it, I don't know if you're like me at all, but, you know, you wake up early in the morning, you doom scroll Facebook, and then you're just like, wow, it, it really is the end, you know, because you see everything that's going on in the Ukraine, possibility of war with China. Uh, I have young sons that, you know, in their 20s that are in the military, you know, and so that means something to me, and, and, and so I know that that could mean them. COVID, many other things seemingly just around the corner. Lack of leadership in our country, Seeming, seemingly, and, and this isn't like a political thing. I'm, you know, this isn't about Democrats, Republicans, no, but there just seems to be this lack of leadership in our country that, that is, is powerful, that is consistent, that is right-minded. So slowly, things are getting worse and worse. And I think it just, our own current experience, not only do we have the scriptures telling us, you're living in the end times, our own current experience cries it out. We are currently living in the end times, and it is accelerating, getting worse and worse. So how does our Father give, since this is the fact, so how does our Father want us to live in these end times, as individuals, as couples, as single, as families, as a church. How are we supposed to be living when the world is winding down, if you will? Look at verse 7 again. The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, here's how you should live, church, brothers and sisters in Christ. Be self-controlled. Be sober-minded. So let's unpack these two words real quick. Self-controlled, sophroneo in Greek. It basically means this. To remain emotionally calm under extreme duress. It's the antithesis of giving into a frenzied state of fear and panic. You know, like buying a two-year supply of toilet paper, you know, like we all did, right, I guess. I I don't know if we had a two-year supply, but it, at least two weeks, right? And so we, we did this thing. We saw the world come unhinged, yeah? And some of us were right there with it. Why? Because this is a plague, and we're all locked down, and this is scary stuff. This is the end times. How are we supposed to live? And so we were isolated. We remained isolated, and we did things to ensure our own personal survival isolated from everyone, family, church, didn't matter. We all hold up in our homes. It didn't look self-controlled at all. The second word is to be sober-minded, nepho in Greek. Now, this world is essentially synonymous with self-controlled, but instead of being applied to your emotions, this is directed at the way you think, the way you make decisions. In other words, make good decisions based upon your faith in God rather than your fear of the circumstances surrounding you. For example, just to bring both words all together, here's a good illustration of, of what the apostle is telling us to do. 
During a heated battle, a subordinate once asked General Stonewall Jackson why he seemed unfazed by all the carnage around them. As the cannons blazed and the shots buzzed by, Stonewall said this, Captain, my religious belief teaches me to feel as safe in battle as in bed. God has fixed the time for my death. I do not concern myself about that, but to be always ready, no matter when it comes to overtake me. Captain, that is the way all men should live, and then all would be equally brave. Stonewall Jackson. As our days become spiritually darker and our times far more troubled, what we need, what the church needs, and even our unbelieving communities that we live in, what they need more than ever are men and women of faith whose emotions are calm and whose decisions are biblically clear. That's who we need to be for one another and for a world that's watching. They need to be able to look at First Baptist Bayfield, Grace Hill Church, Farmington. They need to look at the people and go, why are they so calm? The world's coming to an end. Everything is terrible. Why are they making good decisions? And it all points not to us. It always points to Jesus. It's because we have this faith. We have his love. We have the assurance of his word, the Holy Spirit that lives in us, that we know where we're going to go. And so we're able to live in a way that's different than the world, that's even in the midst of turmoil, attractive to the world. And so this is the way we must live. And then look at what the Apostle Peter says at the end of this verse, verse 7. Again, the end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be these two things, self-controlled, be emotionally calm, be sober-minded, make good biblical-based decisions. Why? And then he says, for this reason, for the sake of your prayers. Now, what does he mean by that? I mean, think about it for a moment. You've all experienced hard times in your life, in your churches. You've all seen loved ones hurt. You've lost some. I have no doubt. You've lost jobs, hope, homes. You've experienced the pain of perhaps broken vows, broken families. So I dare say that although it's prettier up here, uh, you're no different than your brothers and sisters in New Mexico. Many of you have suffered in these ways as Christians, as followers of Christ. What is one of the first things we do when real personal hardship strikes us? We stop praying. It's a weird thing. We're more apt to pray when everything is good or when everything is, when we're just in an apathetic kind of, you know, mundane kind of mood. And then we just voice the words. We repeat the words. And it becomes vain repetition. The vain repetition that Jesus warned us about. That kind of prayer that is useless and powerless and is not intimate. It doesn't speak of a saving relationship. It's just a religious person going through the motions. Yeah, we can do that all day long. What I'm talking about is the kind of prayer that is fervent, that is urgent, that is earnest. It's like someone in love with their father going, I, you got to hear me. And what turmoil and hardship and division 
and brokenness does to us is sometimes it renders us, what is the point? God, I've been praying for this all along and you didn't give it to me. My marriage is still a failure. My family's still broken. My church is still divided. And I prayed for all those years. And now I'm not self-controlled. I'm an emotional wreck. And now I'm not making good decisions. I've abandoned all that. And I'm just trying to, just to do it on my own. Trying to figure it out on my own. Life. So how do we get back to being calm? How do we get back to making sound biblical decisions? Having that clear thinking. And he's saying right here, for the sake of your prayers. Not only does a calm spirit and a clear mind, biblical mind, allow you to have a, a flourishing prayer life. But when you don't, the way back to the clear mind in that calm spirit is to do what? Is to pray. Talk to your father. He's the only one that can fix this. You can't fix it. Your spouse can't fix it. The elders of your church can't fix it. God can. You've got to talk to him. And so when you don't feel like praying, when you're so broken and there's nothing in you, you're apathetic, you're angry, you've given up, that's when you need to pray more than ever. That's when you've got to get down on your knees. And maybe you don't have anything to say. Maybe it's a Job moment and you're just broken and maybe angry. You know what? Your father is a big father. He can take it. You can ask him questions. You can go, why? And wait for answers. But you've got to pray. That's when you must pray the most. Prayer is the evidence of a calm spirit, a clear mind. These are the result of an abiding faith in God, his word, his promises. Now, some of you, even right now, you might not admit it out loud, but there's fear in your heart. You're watching the same news that I watch. You're experiencing the same issues in, again, your marriage, your family, your church. And you wonder, there, you know, the... When you have experiences like this, there's always that question mark. Are we going to be here tomorrow? Are we going to survive this? What's this going to look like? This is what life in the fallen world is all about. And so, yeah, some of you have, just like all of us, fear in your heart. You're, there's fear of war, disease, our nation being divided, our churches being divided. Again, the church as a whole not just you all, not just Grace Hill, because we, we still experience it too. The church as a whole is plagued with disunity and infighting. We have seen well-known pastors abandon the sufficiency of Scripture and the power of the gospel, all for the sake of being politically correct and accepted by every, uh, the very wor world rather that hates us. And I know the promise to the church the gates of hell will not prevail against it. That is absolutely biblical and true. But when we ignore the scriptures and diminish the efficacy of the gospel to save sinners and to transform lives, we should be fearful. 
I get it. I feel it too. So where do we find peace? How do we discover a way to respond faithfully and prayerfully instead of reacting in fear to the turmoil around us, especially in these end times? Let me share a word picture with you real quick. When I was a little boy, I was probably at the time four, five, and I was playing across the street. This was in Bloomfield, right next to the high school there in Bloomfield. Little dirt, almost all the roads back then in Bloomfield were dirt roads, right? And so this was, uh, what, it would have been like 74, 75. In any case, I was playing in a field across from my house. There's a dirt road, and my dad steps out on the front porch. He's on the front lawn now, and he yells out to me. He's like, hey, Tim, time to come home. And so I just heard my dad's voice. I take off running, right? And I wake up, and I'm I'm in the dirt. I'd been run over by a car. And not necessarily run over. In fact, uh, you know, years later, I asked my dad about it. And he's like, nah, it didn't necessarily run over you. You, like, ran into it. You tried to run over it because I just didn't look. You know, I'm just a little boy, and I took off running, and I hit the side of it. But it knocked me out cold. And, you know, I wake up, and I'm in the dirt, and I'm all beat up, and I'm hurting for sure. And I'm really scared because I I thought, okay, I'm going to die. You know, because uh, I didn't know how bad I was hurt. My dad picks me up and he's like, I've got you. You're going to be okay. You're all right. And that's all I needed to hear for the fear to just, boom, all right. Dad's got me. He's going to take care of me. He's already told me I'm all right. That's what we must do. If we want calm spirits, if we want to think clearly, in times of duress in our lives, end times or not, in our marriages, our families, our churches, what we have to do is, I want to hear my Father's voice. That's where we're going to find it. And so how do you do that? Look, you open your Bible early in the morning or late at night or at some point, and you listen for his voice, and you meditate on his word, and then you talk back to him, you pray to him, you ensure that this pulpit is filled with a man of God that's going to preach God's word and not tickle your ears. So that you can hear not his voice, not my voice, but God's voice. When you sit in your home groups, you ensure that the conversation is really grounded in scripture. Why? Because you're there, yes, for fellowship, all of that is important, but you're there to hear your father's voice. A calm spirit and a clear mind comes from hearing your father's voice. And the more you expose yourself to that, the better. In fact, notice what it says in John chapter 14. Here's our father's voice. We can get an opportunity to have a calm spirit right now and a clear mind. Look at what it says, John 14, verses 1 through 6. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. My Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and I will take you to myself, that where I am you may be also. And you know the way to where I am going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we don't know where you're going. How can we know the way? And Jesus said to him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father 
except through me. Meditating on words like that is where you're going to hear your father's voice. Your heart will no longer be troubled. Your mind will no longer be indecisive and chaotic. You'll be grounded in your father's word. Now then, secondly, second thing we must do in the end times or in hardship is keep loving one another. Look at what it says in verse 8. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. Now, this seems simple enough. Continue to love each other as you live through the end times. Here's the problem. At the best of times, our love for one another in the church is limited to a few exchanges of social pleasantries during an hour or so on Sunday morning. You guys understand that? The best of times. I want you to think about this. I I just saw this Fox News, Baptist Press. They're predicting by 2058, the church in America will, one said, no longer exist. Another said it would be so diminished that churches, by and large, will no longer exist. Uh, It'll be just house churches. So small, so expensive, and the, the congregation so diminished in numbers, it will no longer be able to pay bills, sustain itself. 2058, that's, for many of us, hey, we're going to see that. And so there's, there's a time coming in the decades to come that we're going to look back at 2022, the fall of 2022, even with everything that's going on, and go, those were the best times. We're going to long for this Sunday morning. We're going to long for a building to, church, to do church in. It's going to look different. By the way, that has already happened in a lot of the world. I remember going to Sierra Leone. We went there four years ago on a mission trip. 80% Muslim there in Sierra Leone. And yet the Christians we met and we, we got to do ministry with were some of the most vibrant, amazing, spirit-filled people, biblical. It was great. Then we went to London and we did a tour, my wife and I. And we had our, our church history professor, Dr. McMullen from Midwestern. He met us there in London, which was great because I couldn't drive backwards or whatever it is that they do. And so he drove us around and he did the tour for us. And he's a church historian. And so we thought, man, this is going to be great. We're going to meet all these wonderful people. We went to C.S. Lewis's home into his church. There was nobody there. In fact, Dr. McMullen, he told us, he's like, Tim, most of the Anglican churches here have been sold, gutted, and they're either one of two things. They're either nightclubs with the most disgusting things going on inside of them at night in these churches, old, gothic, beautiful churches, or they've been converted to mosques. Fastest growing religion in England is is still to this day is Islam. It's not Christianity. And so they're just a few decades ahead of us. This is what I'm getting at. So at the best of times, our love for one another is often not that great. That being the case, what do you think our love for one another will look like in the worst of times? A Dutch primatologist 
named Francis de Waugh once wrote this, all animals are competitive by nature and cooperate only under specific circumstances and for specific reasons, not because of a desire to be nice. Now, before you've accused me of being a closet evolutionist, allow me to make myself perfectly clear. I do not believe that we are descendants of monkeys, but when we are exposed to hardships, as prophesied about in the end times, we are apt to act like animals towards one another. Our hidden, sinful, selfish natures are apt to come out. This is why the apostle was adamant about the essential nature of our love for one another. Notice how he prefaced it again there in verse 8. Above all, yeah, have a calm spirit. Have clear biblical thinking. But even beyond this, because of the hardship that you're going to endure, that's going to cause you to be sinfully, uh, sinfully selfish, keep loving one another earnestly. So this one phrase serves as a not-so-subtle reminder of something that Jesus had talked about long before this. Our, our Lord's command, Matthew 22, verses 30, 37 through 40. Notice what he says there. Matthew 22, beginning in verse 37. And he said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. Love your neighbor as yourself. In other words, show compassion for, take care of, love others unconditionally and sacrificially. You know, and it's interesting, when we hear that great commandment, you know, love God, we're, we're usually great at that one, right? Or at least in our minds. Yes, I love God. I personally repented. I personally said the sinner's prayer or what have you. And, and I personally have a savior. And it's my personal relationship with him that counts. You know why we know that this is where a lot of Christians today are, are this is their mindset? And it goes back to COVID again. You know, during that time, for us, it was just a matter of a few months. But for many churches... It was a solid year, if not longer, of not meeting corporately. Just doing something on television, you know, internet or what have you, and doing, you know, worship in their living rooms instead of having communion. You know, I, there was churches doing goofy stuff like, hey, grab a pizza and a beer and that would be your communion. That was supposed to be a picture of the body and the blood of Christ. And so it was just this real individualized kind of Christianity suddenly going on. Just do what you want. Many churches did not recover. In fact, most churches, I don't know if this is true here in Bayfield, most churches were down like 40% and still have not recovered back to their original numbers. And so Christianity is, has become uh, an individual effort. Not corporate, not a team, not a family, but it's just between me and God. It has nothing to do with you all, my brothers and sisters. And yet here we're told, if you really love God, how will you know it? You're going to love your neighbor as yourself. You're going to love your brothers and sisters in Christ. You're going to not forsake the gathering of the church together, especially in the end times. 
Why? Because this is where we're able to love one another. And so that's what this word, by the way, love or agape in Greek really means. To love each other as Christ has loved you. Unconditionally, sacrificially. This is how we live it out. Romans 5.8 tells us this. Look at what it says. But God shows his love, agape, for us. How? In that while we were still sinners, that's unconditional love. He didn't say, hey, Tim, I'm going to save you after you get a haircut, take that earring out of your... This was me in like, uh, what was it, 88. You know, earring out, get rid of the Metallica t-shirt. He didn't say none of that. Jesus died for me when I was just like that. Just like he died for you. He didn't tell you to get your act together and then, then my son's death will mean something for you. No, no. It's the other way around. So his love is unconditional. Now I want you to think about that because that's rough. Because we're supposed to love each other this way. Can you look at people that have wounded you even recently and say, okay, I'm going to still love you. Or are you going to go, dude, there's conditions on my love. You hurt me. So I hate you. And I have every right to hate you. And we drum up some weird verses. You know, I'm not going to cast pearls before swine. What does that got to do with anything? Jesus said to love them unconditionally, you know. And so we come up with excuses not to love. And we do this, again, in the best of times. The worst of times are yet to come. Are you still going to be able to love unconditionally? And then this word also means sacrificial. Look at what it says, Romans 5, 8 again. God shows his agape love for us in that why we will still sinners, unconditional, Christ died for us. There it is, sacrificial. It's not enough to simply say, hey, I love you just as you are. No, it has to, and I love you so much that I'm willing to give you anything you need, no matter how much it costs me. This is the way we're supposed to love one another in the church. No wonder this is the will of our Father in these end times. Listen, I truly believe we're coming to a place where all we have are one another, the church, brothers and sisters in Christ. And I'm talking, again, about the church, our brothers and sisters all over the world gathered worshiping the one true God all over this community, beyond churches like Higher Ground in Farmington, Gospel Church Durango, another sister church, the Blaze Fellowship in Santa Fe. I bet you didn't know you had a sister church in Santa Fe. You do. Grace Hill Church right here at First Baptist Bayfield, not to mention countless others. But it all begins with how you all are loving one another here and now. Unconditional, doesn't matter what you did to me. Sacrificial. I'm going to give you whatever you need, no matter how much it costs me. This is how Jesus lived, died, and rose again. This is the way Jesus said, I love you. All begins with you right here. The way you love and care for one another. Not tomorrow when it gets tough, right now. This is a good predictor of how you will love others when it gets much worse. Notice what we're told in 1 John 3, 16 through 18. By this we know love 
that, we, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. Yikes. Yeah, that hurts. Takes faith. Absolutely. Now then, why is it essential for us to love one another unconditionally, sacrificially in these end times? Look at the end of verse 8. Since unconditional, sacrificial love does what? Covers a multitude of sins. Look, as times get harder for us, financially, physically, spiritually, in every aspect you can imagine, when we are pressed and persecuted, one of the results will be this. We will, we have, we will continue to sin against one another. We will see our brothers and sisters in need and do nothing and rationalize it all away. Well, I've got to take care of my own because we are too concerned about ourselves. That's really what it comes down to. We will be unwilling to share what we have to give of our time, energy, talents, treasure, our love. And as a result, we will deeply wound one another. And the only thing powerful enough to heal those wounds, some of the wounds that you guys are feeling even now, the only thing that's going to unite our churches, our families, is love. That's it. It it is you consciously going, I I don't want to, but I'm going to love this person. Unconditional, he hurt me, whatever. Sacrificially, what do they need? In fact, I think I'm going to even call out to him, like, how can I pray for you? Because that's the only thing that's going to heal it up. Let me put it to you like this. The closest you'll be to God, the most Christ-like you will ever look, is not when you're all dressed up or what have you on Sunday morning, but when you're in the dirt, in the trenches with your neighbor on Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday. Do you see what I'm getting at? So the end of all things is at hand. Be calm. Think clearly. Keep loving one another unconditionally and sacrificially. Now for some of you, This all makes perfect sense. The Spirit's in you. The Word's been proclaimed. Your Father has spoken to you, and you're like, yes, Father, I know it's hard. I'm going to trust you. I'm going to go forward with this. For others of you, this makes no sense. What do you need to do? You need to know who Jesus is. Fully God, perfectly God, perfectly man, united as one. He lived a sinless life, the life that you could never live. He never sinned once in thought, word, and deed. And then he took all of that innocence, all of that perfection, and he said, I love you enough unconditionally, sacrificially, to go to the cross and take all of your sins and make them mine. And then God the Father punished him for you. And on the cross, the last thing he said is, it is finished. And what he meant by that is that the sacrifice is complete. There's not an ember in hell burning for anyone that has trusted in Jesus Christ. Three days later, he rose from the grave. Also, that by 
repenting of your sins and putting your faith in Jesus Christ, you could have his perfect righteousness accounted as your own. You could have his sacrifice. Now you have the forgiveness of God. You can look at the empty tomb and have eternal life in your heart and in reality. This is the way Jesus has loved you. And this is what you must do in these end times. Last verse. Matthew 24, 42 through 44. So be prepared, because you don't know what day our Lord is coming. Know this, a homeowner who knew exactly when a burglar was coming would stay alert and not permit the house to be broken into. You also must be ready all the time, for the Son of Man will come when least expected. The King is coming. Are you prepared? Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much that you've loved us enough to send your son to give us instruction in these end times when we are broken. Help us, Lord, to live these things out, to go to you in prayer and find a calm spirit, a clear mind, to look at one another and have the capacity to see through the eyes of Christ, love one another unconditionally, sacrificially, We thank you for these truths, Father. Hide them in our hearts. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.